Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We're all decked out for Halloween. Yeah. One of four Halloween episodes that we're doing. And if it's not Halloween and you're listening, I mean, keep going because these are good anytime. But, but we're particularly excited about these topics uh, because we get to tie them in with our, our Halloween enthusiasm. In fact, uh, we were recording this in costume. Yes. Um, Julie, would you describe your costume to the listeners? Um, well, it's kind of hard to describe because I think I just look very... Uh well, I mean, I've got a lot of stainless steel surrounding me right now. Yes. And people keep dumping vegetables into me. Uh-huh. And then like two hours later, I produce a substance. Can you guess what I am? Um, I, you're, You look kind of like a robot with soup on you. But I thought that was the, the costume, like a soup robot. Th- that wasn't very like uh, complex and just kept spilling my soup. Yeah. Right. No, no. I'm the cloaca machine. Oh, that's gross. I know. Yeah. It's a, it's a terrifying, uh, <laughs> uh, Halloween costume, which we will describe a, a little, in a little more detail at the end of this, this podcast. And we, but we mentioned it in a, in a previous one about digesting robots. Yeah. So you are a digesting robot. I'm uh, more like the pooping duck. And, and just to make everybody feel better, there's no okay. actual stuff produced by me. No. But if you had like brought in some like soft serve chocolate ice cream, that would have been appropriate based on the pictures I've seen of the, poop that the cloaca bot produces. Yes. 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 Okay. Gosh, now you've told everybody my secret. Okay, so you, you're you sitting over there uh, eating your, your Halloween candy. What are you? I am Humpty Hump. See, you notice the glasses and the, the large fake nose and the furs from, you know, Digital Underground. Oh, right. I thought, yeah, yeah. It, I thought it was just Wednesday. No. <laughs> no, this is my Humpty Hump costume. Um, a big, big fan from way back, especially the Digital Underground uh, cameo with Tupac in... Uh, that horrible Dan Aykroyd movie, uh, Nothing But Trouble. Oh, goodness. I yeah. have to say that I have not seen that. Oh, hopefully. it was like Dan Aykroyd's pet project. And, and God bless him. It's 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 a horrible film. Yeah, it's got he, Demi Moore in yeah. it and uh, Chevy Chase. And it's just it's very Halloween themed, like a kind of a haunted house and all these grotesque characters running around and not really funny at all. And then there's just this huge scene where Digital Underground is is brought before the um the the evil judge, one of like eighteen characters played mm-hmm. by uh, Dan Aykroyd in this, and then they're made to perform. That sounds like the result of too much money, too <laughs> much time, and too many stimulants. So speaking of yes, speaking stimulants, of stimulants, not not um, too much time, time or money, but right. stimulants. Uh, speaking of stimulants, we we're of course talking about it's Halloween. You think Halloween? You think Halloween candy? The topic of this uh, particular podcast, the candy corn menace, uh, and we are we're not just talking about candy corn, but about Various candies and just sugar in general as a as a childhood obsession and uh, to a certain extent an adulthood ex- um, obsession as well. Yeah, yeah. Why kids are so transfixed and and why we are too. Why we continue to be uh, just uh, sort of going to that siren call of candy, except for candy corn. For me, <laughs> for you, I'm in the camp of hating candy corn. I don't think it really should exist other than to like create little fangs with. Yeah. Um, Oh, it you can't, you can't oh, a waxy yeah. abomination. Well, I this was this was interesting. We were talking about this yesterday, and I uh, I, I asked people on the How Stuff Works main uh, Facebook page. I was mm-hmm. like, "Hey guys, what's what's your favorite candy, and what candies Halloween type candies do you find is particularly vile?" And uh, a number of people mentioned candy corn. Uh, yeah. So uh, at least one person mentioned my least favorite candy, 
which uh, happens to be circus peanuts, which are, you know, those <laughs> yeah. giant like they they I guess they kind of they're kind of molded to look like a giant swollen peanut, but it's made of some orange. I thought you were going to say something else. No, some sort of orange spongy material that may or may not be food, but is ingested. Right. I it's 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 really grim. And then uh, I I asked my wife, and uh, she she mentioned uh, Boston beans. It's being particularly oh, weird. Yeah. Yep. Like who would name a candy Boston Bee? And then, and then there are, we'll, we'll talk about some other disgusting candies as we, we go forth. And, and also maybe not candies that are not all that disgusting, uh, as far as their taste mm-hmm. may go, but their, um, uh, their marketing has been yeah, somewhat how questionable. Marketed. Yeah. And, uh, and if I had to pick one though, that I, I'm not really a candy eater anymore. And this is something we're going to talk about how adults tend to move more and more away from candy while children cannot get enough. I will occasionally, have a um a hankering for uh some Twizzlers. Ah, yeah, and I bet that it's probably that that time of the day when your circadian rhythms have dropped, right? And you need a, a easy pickup. Yeah, Twizzler o'clock. Yeah. Twizzler o'clock, three o'clock. I see them on your desk, noshing on them. Yeah, well, no, you don't. Don't don't make the listeners, especially my wife, think that I'm pulling out Twizzlers every, every day afternoon from it's... your little safe <laughs> underneath your desk. I don't know what else is in there. The Twizzler safe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, great. Now I've got explaining to do. But, uh, but anyway, so, so let's, let's move on. So why are kids so into candy? Like, why are they, cause they, they're just obsessed with it. Well, we should probably talk about it from an evolutionary perspective. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's back. Cause if they're craving it, there's, there's something at work there. We tend not to crave things unless we need it on some level. So, right. so on a very basic level, like what is sugar about as a structural material? Sugar is involved in just about every aspect of our biology. It's involved in recognizing pathogens, blood clotting, enabling sperm to penetrate the ovum, regulating the half-life of hormones, directing embryonic development, acting as an address code for mm-hmm. uh, directing traffic of various cells and proteins. Of course, this doesn't mean that it's it's a good nutrient. Like it's uh, it's right when it comes to uh, to that, it's like mostly calories and no vitamins, uh, no fiber. And it's like in the good stuff you'll find in things like uh, apples, oranges, oranges, uh, other yeah. fruits that deliver sugar, but also other helpful things. Yeah. When we talk about sugar, we should probably acknowledge that, right? So, yes. Yeah, definitely. Fruits carry that. So it's it's an easy, quick burst of energy. Yes. Uh, you've got you know glucose, and glucose is quite a prize when you're surviving in an environment where food is hard to come by, right? Right. So if you came upon an apple, that would be great. Although, of course, Apple has fiber, so it's going to fill you up a little bit more. Just from an evolutionary perspective, we know that this would be important for us having a leg up in the survival game. Right. It gives you a little boost. Uh, and as, we, as we've discussed in our um, one of our previous topics about uh, uh, decision fatigue, mm-hmm. that boost uh, is not just like a physical energy boost, but can also help you in your ability to navigate the world around you, to figure out what choice you're going to make. Are you going to... When, when you're running from that sudden saber-toothed tiger attack, mm-hmm. uh, are you gonna are you gonna run towards the rock or are you gonna run towards the tree? Maybe that fruit you just ate off the ground is going to give you the mental leg up you need to know which uh, place is gonna mean your survival. Yeah, yeah, and you brought this up uh, the other day when we were just sort of casually talking about the topic about how it really does help your decision making abilities, uh, especially in the context of decision fatigue, which we talked about before. Right. And uh, we talked about a study there where the judges were becoming extremely fatigued and they were making decisions that were you know, essentially just kind of putting off the uh, parole decision that they mm-hmm. were trying to make. And they found that when the judges were given a quick burst of sugar in the form of fruits, that all of a sudden their decision making came back online. Huh. So it makes you think that 
that uh, like especially in the courtroom, you basically need a big hummingbird feeder full of sugar water yeah, for, for yeah, the judges. Yeah. I mean, really, if you've got a case at three o'clock in the afternoon, you should mm-hmm. probably bring a snack for the judge. <laughs> Although you need to clear it with the security guard first. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be bad form if you did not. So let's go in the Wayback Machine and look at prohibition and oh, yes. um, how actually. No, wait, we, we just traveled back into the past. So aren't we going forward at this point? Oh, we are. Well, we were still in the Wayback Machine, but anyway. Well, yeah. yeah okay, let's go in the way back and forth machine. Okay. That we're fast better. forwarding then from the saber toothed tiger dodging ground fruit eating. Mm-hmm. Caveman days, and now we're prohibition. And yep, everybody's in the Charleston. Yeah, uh, bugle bead gowns are being worn, and alcohol is getting itself um, banned in the United States. That's right; it's not as readily available. So, what do they find is happening? They find that uh, candy like nickel nips, no tittering, please. Uh, these are wax bottles with sugar syrup um, become really popular during Prohibition. And these are still around. I um, yeah. I picked some up as a novelty a few years back to take to uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater Night, which uh, I get to every week. And used to, we would have more of an emphasis on absurd candies like Nerds Rope and stuff. Yeah. But we got over that because we're older and wiser. But uh, – <laughs> But I remember bringing some of those, and they were—they're just—they're really gross. I mean, I guess, yeah. like I say, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm approaching this as a as a non, for the most part, a non candy person. So kids, I'm sure, will still find them very exciting because it's like this little wax bottle filled with something that is—it's a liquid, and I guess it's like colored sugar water, kind of a thing, yeah. some sort of weird syrup. And I, I actually thought about picking some up. Uh, for this podcast, but we record in the morning and I was going to have to pick them up in the morning and I might yeah. get arrested if I'm seen buying, what are these called again? Uh, nickel nips. Nickel nips. Or I go into a store asking for nickel nips at 8 a.m. You're, you're yeah. probably going to have to go to a specific store for this. I don't think that this is just a, like your corner uh, drug store. Yeah. And they're available now, but I don't know if they make them anymore. Like I have the suspicion that candies like nickel nips and um, circus peanuts that they haven't been made in decades. They just made enough of them, and the consumption <laughs> rate is so low yeah, that, sh- you know, you open a new um, drugstore and you're just issued some nickel nips and some uh, Boston beans and some circus peanuts, and they're, they're like, all right, you got your candy set. It's like government-issue, subsidized, yeah. a shelf life of 500 years. we got to get rid of them. But, yeah, I mean, this is what people were tipping back in lieu of alcohol because it was giving them a sugar rush. And people were to eat drinking, like, massive amounts of alcohol before Prohibition. That's one right. thing to, to to keep in mind, it's not just a, a, an issue of like, oh, well, we were drinking and then we had this brief period where we cut back because it was illegal and then we were right back where we, we started. According to Ken Burns, who uh, currently or by the time this airs, I, they may have aired the entire miniseries. They have the new miniseries, Prohibition, mm-hmm. that goes into great detail about uh, the, the, the roots of Prohibition and then uh, you know draw parallels to current political climates. And uh, he pointed out before Prohibition, the uh, – Average person was consuming somewhere between ninety and one hundred and eighty bottles per year of alcohol of wow. booze. Okay, yeah, okay. So and, and a lot of that booze is going to have a fair amount of sugar in it. Yeah. 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 And so we know, right, exactly. So it's sort of a double whammy. And we know that uh, with the sugar rush and with alcohol, it's going to start uh, affecting the reward center of our brain. Right. Right. So this is obviously why we keep coming back to it time and time again. And that's why during that time period, it was viewed as an epidemic. Right. So let's talk about the reward center and candy. Um, basically, we have sugar causing the release of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, our old friend nucleus accumbens. 
which I see, I feel like we talk about a lot lately, um, delivering the classic sugar high. So neurosciences behavioral review reports that binging on sugar stimulates the same euphoric pathway targeted by hardcore drugs like cocaine and can cause similar withdrawal, craving and cross sensitization. So it's no wonder that one of the slang terms for cocaine is nose candy. Ah, yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah, it's the same ding ding in the brain. Not to be confused with ding dongs, which are like a, uh, that's not definitely a candy, I guess, but a, a junk sweet food. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Of course. I and mean, another thing, though, to keep in mind about prohibition real quick is that the alcohol makers and the, uh, and the brewers, a lot of them found themselves unable to legally produce alcohol. So they turned their attention to creating, uh, candies or sugary sodas. Ah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so suddenly a lot of the guys that were in the business of giving you your alcohol were now saying, well, that's illegal, but we have orange soda like crazy. So drink this instead. Right. And you can get a quick little high yeah. and, and it'll be touch on that your reward way. system. Yeah. So it's the new drug, orange yep. soda. Okay. So back in the time machine, a little bit forward here, uh, the Great Depression. Okay. Oh, yes. And then now you see candy being completely marketed in another way. Right. So be, as you mentioned, it was in the form of colas. Right. Um, but now, I mean, resources are seriously scarce and people are not able to actually buy a full meal or make a full meal for themselves or their families. So they go to the store and they buy themselves a chicken dinner candy bar. That is truth. <laughs> yes. That sounds I'm not insane. making that up at all. I, I, look, I looked it up. You can if you do a Google image search. On chicken dinner candy bar, uh-huh. you will find images of this this awesome <laughs> and terrifying like cut like I should I should stress that it it was not flavored like a chicken dinner. No, this is not like the uh, the candy that they have in uh, in Willy Wonka that tastes like a, a seven course meal. It's just right. a candy bar. The gimmick here is hey, you don't have time or money, um, uh, etc., to have an actual chicken dinner. Buy a candy bar instead. Right. And according to Beth Kimmerling, she's the author of Candy, the Sweet History, that the, the package actually had a picture of a roasted chicken with like steam coming <laughs> off of it, which, again, it just sounds kind of awful and disgusting. But they were trying to 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 market this as healthy and inexpensive. Hearing that on one level, I'm like, oh, my goodness, what a an unenlightened age or, you know, or, or I want to make, you know, judgments about about the differences. But uh, you go to the store now and you have all these things like the like the cliff bars and various diet and energy bars. And and those may not be marketed as here is a substitute for your dinner. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it is you know, very much the idea of here is the equivalent of a meal or a huge energy punch in bar form. Well, yeah, but you can also look at fast food joints and, you you know, the dollar menu is a good example, right? Mm-hmm. So they have, um, you know, obviously like there's much more protein. There's much more to this in terms of what, a person's consuming, but it's the same idea of here's this healthy and inexpensive thing. It's a dollar when, in fact, it's something that's unhealthy and it's very much subsidized. And, and may have basically come out of a cloaca bot. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that the same sort of idea exists, right? Like whatever you have at your disposal at that time, uh, you've got candy. Let's market it as something that's going to satiate your appetite. Uh, so candy has just kind of morphed a little bit you know, through history in terms of how people have perceived it. But I do really love the fact that it was that this package, this roasted chicken on a package was was yeah <laughs> like as if you just put it right there, then you would believe it. I'm going to eat this chicken. But I also think that it points to how dire the circumstances were at the time. Right. Now, uh, you, you mentioned the fast food, and it is important to, to mention that this sort of stereotypical, the average 
fast food meal as we conceive it mm-hmm. does pack a huge um, sugar punch in the form of a supersized cola drink. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, and also additives too, right? Yes. Depending absolutely. on what you're getting. Okay, so let's let's talk about kids and why they are such candy fiends and how honestly they can't help themselves. All right. Well, we let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss these little monsters. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, and then we're back. Uh, so on the issue of children and candy, mm-hmm. one of the, the memories that always comes to my mind is uh, that there was this uh, bat mitzvah. Uh, that my uh, my wife shot, and uh, she's a photographer. She was shooting this thing, and I came along to do some on-site printing for the guests. And so, so you had this entire room just filled with little girls, and they had all the like their their snack bar slash lunch dinner bar, whatever. I forget what time of day it was, but it was just loaded with things like. Uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream and all sorts of sweets to put on it. And then, uh, like a cupcake fountain. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. I mean, and then of course, like pizza and, and other kind of kid friendly foods as well. Mm-hmm. But they were just crazy on sugar and they were yeah. just running around and they would just swoop into the, the photo booth that we'd set up and they would just go crazy for these photos. I remember thinking, wow, these kids are insane. And it was just because they were just getting a nonstop rush of sugar. They were just doing more sugar every five minutes. And what's really, it's really funny if the kid doesn't actually belong to you. Mm -hmm. And you just get to observe it, but especially with little girls, because in in those circumstances, because they usually have dresses on with crinolines and stuff. And then all of a sudden, like they there's like a wrestling pile of them (laughs) and they're just so high on sugar and they start beating each other up. At least the the parties I've been to. Wow. They're all like little Hulk Hogan's. (laughs) But yes, I mean, this is this is the result of sugar. It creates uh, even the most docile child becomes a sort of Hulk Hogan up kid, right? Right. And it, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned the Hulk Hogan thing, because, of course, Hulk, we think of Hulk Hogan, we think hulking up, we think of muscles and bones. Um, and, uh, and and that's actually linked to this, uh, we, we think. Um, there, the theory is that, that a lot of this, um, this sugar craving is linked to rapid gro- bone growth. Yeah. That they're hardwired to it because growing bones secrete hormones that influence uh, metabolism. And we know that other uh, metabolic hormones like leptin and insulin um, can act on areas of the brain that control cravings and appetites and even directly bind to the tongue where they affect the the preference for sweet taste. Which is fascinating, right? Yeah. Because what they found, um, this is from an article from NPR called Kids Sugar Craving Maybe Biological, is that they found that kids actually have like, a, a different taste landscape, I guess you could say. Yes, yeah, this is what really like yeah, or blew sensory, my mind. Or sensory palate, really. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, they, they referred to it as kids living in a different sensory world than adults. Yeah. It was, so it's... I mean, it's just like their entire world is turned slightly on its head yeah. uh, when it comes to what tastes good and what doesn't. Yeah, it's very different from an adult. Researcher Julie Manella of the Monell Chemical Census Center says, quote, kids prefer much more intense sweetness and saltiness than the adult, and it doesn't decrease until late adolescence. And we have some evidence that they may be more sensitive to bitter taste. Uh, so when Manella's researchers studied this, what they did is they gave adults 
a sucrose and water solution that was on par with like your average cola. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was kind of the extent that the adults wanted their sugar. They didn't want it any more. They didn't want it really any less. Kids, on the other hand, preferred twice the amount of sugar. And then younger children had absolutely no limit when it came to the amount of sugar <laughs> that was put in the solution. They were like, keep dumping it in until the, the solution cannot hold more sugar before it, it just yes. becomes a big, container of damp sugar yeah. sludge. Yeah, they were all like heavy on the sugar and light on the water, if you know what I mean. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, so, I mean, that gives you a clue right there that, yes, that's a different sensory palate, which leads us to this whole idea that it is hardwired that for a kid surviving, uh, particularly back in the way back, way back day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sugar would give them an advantage. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, it, it makes me think back to Halloween bag of candy days. And, I mean, I would just... Over a few days, I would eat all the candy. Yeah, and it, it was like like I, I if you gave me a, a sack of Tootsie Rolls and told me to eat them now, <laughs> I there's no telling how sick I would become. Right, there would have to be like some sort of five hundred dollar reward. Yeah, right? it, it would have it would be a pretty serious endeavor. But you hand a bag of Tootsie Rolls to like a, a six year old, and they're like, they, they won't even blink an eye. Oh no! I, like I remember Halloween's in in my candy stash and my uh, pillowcase, mm-hmm. and being horribly protective of it because I thought that my brother was going to raid it. <laughs> so, I mean, you can understand why peop- uh, why little kids get so connected to it. Um, this is actually another really interesting thing that came from that article, that sucre- sucrose is actually a natural pain reliever in little ones. Um, they gave sucrose solutions to newborns receiving circumcisions and babies receiving immunizations, and they found that there was a significant decrease in pain. Sugar actually makes them stronger. It actually heals their wounds. No, <laughs> it doesn't. But my my daughter received a bunch of uh, shots when she was born from like the get go for a two week period, and they did give her sugar water uh, hmm. before every single shot. And now she craves sugar. Yeah, she has never had candy, but the store around the corner from us has like the old fashioned like you know little bins of candy, and she just uh, will will stare at it. Wow. Uh, I mean, for hours she would. Do you? Do you she think knocks on them sometimes. She knows what it is. Oh yeah. She yeah. has She's a general like idea of what it must taste like. Well, because every single child, children's book, not every single one, but every other one of them talks about candy. So the she, children's books talk about candy. Yeah. Wow. All the time. There's no escaping it. I there thought really maybe isn't. maybe there's like they're just hardwired to the point where like a child can hear sugar. You know, they walk into a store and they're like, what's that sound? They can hear the molecules yeah. of sugar. like it's sort of grinding. It's... <laughs> the follicles in their ears are like that sensitive yeah. to sugar. Uh, I don't know, but that could be. Who knows? Uh, but you know, let's talk about the, the downside of candy um, other than just, you know, having that initial rush and then plummeting with your energy. A lot of it comes back to our, our origins and, and how we evolved and, and what um, our diet was originally like, and, you know, generally you, you might, you'll find some fruit on the ground, you'll eat it. You'll mm-hmm. get some sugar out of that, but you'll also get some other things that are important for you in, in addition to just the pure sugar. Uh, and in many cases, you would go for a long period of time without getting sugar. Like sometimes right. sugar is difficult to acquire. Anyone who's seen the amazing BBC Discovery co-production, Human Planet, has seen that amazing sequence where the uh, Biaka tribesmen climb this enormous tree to raid this beehive, enormously high, like stories and stories up. Mm-hmm. You just climb up with nothing more than like a burning brand, um, you know, some smoke to ward off some of the bees. And the guy still gets stung just hundreds and hundreds of times while he's uh, retrieving this honey for himself and his family. But the promise of honey and the sugar rush is so yeah, yeah. strong. And not just the sugar rush, but the calories, right? Yeah, like you say, there's there's a benefit to having it. But 
in the old days, it was more work or or when you got it, you uh, you didn't just get the pure sugar. You mm-hmm. uh, received other you you know nutrients. Right. And you might not get it every day. Now, it's an entirely different story. Right, right. We have to worry about being propped up until the next meal. Right. right. Especially industrialized nations. I mean, it begins first thing in the morning for some folks with a nice sugary cereal or even like some some wholesome oatmeal that has been uh, just attacked with a sugar spoon until it's just standing on end. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you really don't have to go that far for it. Um, scientist Ralph DeLeon at Yale University found that an animal's sweet or fatty foods can act a lot like drugs in the brains, which, which uh, we've talked about. And there's growing evidence that eating too much of these foods can cause long-term changes in the brain circuits that control eating behavior. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, both animal and human brains include special pathways that make us feel good when we eat, right? And really good when we eat sweet or fatty foods with lots of calories. And he says that drug addiction is, is really hijacking some of these pathways that evolve to promote food intake for survival reasons. So we talked about dopamine being released in the brain, right? When you, when you eat sugar and we know that with addiction, that uh, if you abuse a substance, you know, whether it's sugar, if you can call it that, you know, a substance um, that is really, truly addictive or alcohol or cocaine, that the more and more you do it, the more and more your dopamine is released. But then your brain backs off on releasing it and actually stops releasing as much, which then requires the user to go and sort of double up on the substance to get the same sugar high. Right. So so a real sugar junkie is is essentially chasing the dragon after a while, to use the old uh, Victorian terminology. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, no, seriously, I mean, they're seeing this. There's actually a uh, Teresa Ray. She's a research assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Pennsylvania. And she was part of a team that gave mice a high fat diet from the time that they were weaned until they reached 20 weeks. So they gained uh, significant amounts of weight and they became obese. Then the researchers looked at the brain's pleasure centers um, which are the areas that we know change in drug addiction. And when she said that what we found is that in animals that were obese, there were really dramatic changes in these areas of the brain that participate in telling us how rewarding food is. The changes made these areas less responsive to fatty foods, so an obese mouse would have to eat more fat than a typical mouse to get the same amount of pleasure. Huh. And some of these changes didn't go away for these mice. Which I think is kind of fascinating is that the the whole idea that it really is changing the way that your brain functions. Wow. And then you think about highly processed foods, right? I mean, that's basically just concentrating sugar, (laughs) you know, to to the point where it's no longer just the, the sugar from a fruit. It's something completely different and much more potent. Right. I mean, even if you, you are just talking about the difference between eating an apple and drinking a glass of apple juice, mm-hmm. like there's a huge difference in, in how in what you're taking in there. But mm-hmm. then you add this uh, you know, like a chemical process on top of that and, and these varying levels of refinement, you get even even farther and farther from the, the original source. Well, and from from uh, what I read that, you know, when you've got it concentrated like this, the message to your brain is a lot louder, Mm -hmm. if I can put that in air quotes, than something like a simple sugar in a banana. And so you get a bigger response from the reward center. So it's it's essentially like the difference between uh, heroin and opium or, uh, you know, or say crack cocaine and cocaine. It's like a a processed, uh, more impactful version 
of yeah. the of the original substance. Right. That's really going to mess with your brain a lot more. Mm. And uh, and again, just uh, sugary sodas and juices can make a, a huge difference. Uh, I ran across this study that showed that teens who quit drinking sugared uh, soda and juices mm-hmm. lost uh, basically a pound a month over six months. I know, isn't that insane? Yeah, and that's just not that's that. not factoring in other things they could potentially cut out. Yeah. But but just like really sugary sodas and and the like. So, yeah, I mean, the reason why candy is really actually a menace is because of childhood obesity. And we know that from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control uh, here in Atlanta, that they have put some pretty staggering statistics out there. Yeah. And uh, in, in not counting situations where the brain has really been reprogrammed um, in, in terms of how much sugar it, it thinks the body needs. It's actually not that difficult uh, for the average person to cut down on their their uh, on their taste for sweetness. Mm-hmm. Like I think I've seen the, the figure uh, around like three weeks it takes to sort of adjust your taste to something. Say, uh, yeah. even if it's something as, as mild as cutting down from a normal soda to a diet soda. Mm-hmm. Tastes weird at first, but they say like three weeks thereabouts. That's about how much time it takes to get used to the new flavor. Right, right, which makes sense. But, you know, it's, it's just a matter of being aware of it and taking it out. But, yeah. when you know, uh, in Forks Over Knives, they talked about the childhood obesity rate, and they were actually saying that the coming generation will have a shorter lifespan than ours, mm-hmm. which is kind of like, whoa. I mean, I haven't gone and fact-checked the movie, but I will say that when, from what the CDC says, they said child, uh, childhood obesity has more than tripled in the past 30 years because of all these highly processed foods, right? Mm-hmm. And because of high fructose uh, corn syrup. And the percentage of children aged 6 to 11 years in the United States who were obese increased from 7% in 1980 to nearly 20% in 2008. Similarly, the percentage of adolescents aged 12 to 19 who were obese increased from 5% to 18% over the same period. So, you know, in 2008, we have more than one-third of children and adolescents who are overweight or obese. Wow. Yeah, and the long-term health effects, you know, obviously are are many. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about increased incidences of certain cancers, uh, type 2 diabetes, Kidney problems, pancreas, the list goes on and on. It's kind of depressing, man. I didn't mean to bring candy <laughs> down like this. Well, well, it, it, it leads to the ultimate question here, and that is Halloween is approaching. If you're listening to this, it, it's at the publication time. And even if you're not, Halloween's going to roll around again. And if not Halloween, then Easter or any any of the various holidays that have some sort of marketed candy associated with them, which is pretty much every holiday. Uh, so... Do you give the, the kids Halloween candy? Do they get to have the candy? Do you try and stop them? Do you dare try and stop them with their strange little zombie minds? Does your house get egged because you give out uh, apples yeah. or toothbrushes? <laughs> yeah. I don't <laughs> know. You don't have anybody in the neighborhood yeah, who ever gave do? out a toothbrush? No, my dad was a dentist and we didn't give out toothbrushes. We <laughs> gave out candy. Oh. But then again, as a dentist, you kind of have an incentive that you can give out candy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's what your dad was like. Here you go. There's the, here's the really sweet yeah. stuff. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you at the office. There you go. <laughs> well, let me reach into the, uh, the Halloween bag here and get some listener mail. We have, have a couple of interesting ones. And the, the first one does relate to uh, the Cloaca Bot. Would you describe the Cloaca Bot? Um, yeah. Just, just to refresh. I can't remember the artist, but... Uh, uh, Vim Delvo. Okay. Yeah. Vim Delvoy, who uh, who created this cloaca bot, 
and put it in a really sterile environment. Basically, put it in a museum with like you know stark white walls around it. And so I can't remember how long this actual bot was, but I'm I'm gonna say like I don't know maybe 12 feet or something like that. Yeah. And he would feed. He had a chef actually prepare meals for the cloaca bot and feed it regularly. And then he would add some um, enzymes, some uh, you know acids, basically trying to replicate the conditions in your stomach. And lo and behold, that cloaca bot would produce poo, like every two hours or so. no, not actually every two hours because it was mimicking the, the human digestion. But anyway, would uh, then produce actual poo, and then people in the museum would come and look at it, and they could buy the samples. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it really blew our minds when we find out, found out about it because it, it also delivers on earlier Victorian attempts or aspirations of mimicking the human bio, and biochemical act of digestion mm-hmm. with a machine. And uh, this guy comes along and, and nails it uh, with horrifying results. Uh, but, of course, we just had pictures to go on, and uh, we have to depend on other people to actually smell the exhibit for us. And our listener, Bernard, from Australia, does just that. He writes, uh, listen to your podcast on the Pooping Duck. I have witnessed uh, Vim Delvo's cloaca professional in action at the Mona Museum in Hobart, Tasmania. Uh, pics I took below. They feed it lettuce, apparently, and at 3 p.m. every day, it does its thing. I can confirm the smell is realistic, almost. There's something not quite right and disturbing about the smell. Maybe that was all in my mind. Uh, as it comes out of the out of the little glass plate it falls on, uh, rotates in a circular pattern to create a Mr. Whippy-like soft surf. Uh, there were lots of kids there, and none of them cried. None of them laughed either. Um, <laughs> oh, and then he adds, on another subject, was standing on a rock a couple feet in diameter uh, a few yards out into a lake fishing once when a platypus swam up and circled the rock uh, against it a few times, then swam away. I have seen them from a distance many times, but that was special. I was just blown away by that, because there's two really cool things, right? Like, platypus, I mean, you know, we're fans of, right? Yeah, which is pretty weird, and has a cloaca. Yes, thank you. And then, yep, and just right around back to actually seeing the cloaca bot in person and then sending us photos. Yes, would you describe these two photos he sent? I mean, honestly, it looks like a mad scientist laboratory. Um, This looks to be like five hanging vessels, right, with all sorts of tubes that are coming from it. I'm assuming that this is the uh, this is the the junk that they put in there to actually break down the food and, and make it into feces. Um, and it's hanging from a track. It is horrific looking. And then the soft serve is that comes out of the chute onto this plate. I can't believe you're making me describe this. <laughs> um, and it kind of looks a little bit like Play-Doh. But anyway, hey, we, we're always game to putting these up on uh, Facebook if anybody's yeah, interested. Yeah. And it was so, so definitely, thank you, Bernard, for writing in, uh, not only to share the pictures, but also to, to describe your firsthand experience with this strange and fascinating exhibit. I mean, yeah. we were kind of recoiling horror from it, but it is it is a very fascinating piece of art. Like, it's not, this dude is create, obviously creating um, art that is that is shocking, that's going to ev- evoke uh, a certain response mm-hmm. from the viewer, but uh, but it's intelligent work. It's not just, he's not just messing no, with it. No, he is serious about excrement, yeah. this artist. Let's see, we have another uh, email here in response to an older uh, episode we did, uh, 999 Birthday Candles. 
Writer Evan writes in and says, uh, hi, Robert and Julie, but mostly Robert because this has to do with Dune. I realize uh, that the tie-in with the 999 Birthdays Candle podcast in Dune may have been a little too heady nerdy for most listeners, but the story has significant relevance to the podcast, particularly in terms of maturity. In the later parts of the Dune series, the character Leto II undergoes the transformation to make him part man, part sandworm. He does this so that he can extend his life expectancy to an indefinite period of time. He states that the problems humanity um, has are a result of typical human life expectancy, and that, and that makes them particularly vulnerable. If they were able to naturally live longer, they might gain a more far-sighted perspective and give up or change their ways. Since a whole race can't do that, Leto II undergoes this transformation and purposely represses almost every aspect of, of the human race in an effort to build in a race memory of tyranny. By doing so, he was able to mature the, the entirety of humanity. Because they despised him so, they underwent an exponential expansion when he died, making it so that he they would be virtually impossible to wipe out. The golden path, man. The saddest part about this is that Frank Herbert died before he could continue the series. If he could have lived to be uh, a few hundred years old, us fans would have been able to see his vision come to print instead of his son's attempts to fulfill and change that vision. Great podcast. Thanks for the Dune references. So, yeah, indeed, the, um, the, the later books... I mean, the first book, in my opinion, is is the best. Uh, and then uh, from there, Frank Herbert began to expand this even more elaborate story. And at one point, uh, Leto does change into this enormous uh, sandworm-human hybrid that's featured prominently on the cover art for Emperor of Dune and always intrigued me as a child long before I, I actually read it. Um, and there's and that particular volume is chocked with a, full of a lot of like really cool existential ponderings about the state of humanity, the long-term uh, survival of the human race. Uh, so, uh, so indeed, thanks, Evan, for writing in about that uh, and raising that point uh, in regard to the Dune series. Uh, and it kind of makes me want to read the first book again. All right. I just keep thinking of Sting, Dune. As yes, a non-Duner, yes. that's, that's my only reference. And then well, I start thinking, what if, what if Sting were to live to be a thousand years old? Would he <laughs> still be practicing tantric yoga and sex at 999? Would anybody want to see that? I don't. I, I'm sure there would be a market for it somewhere, but I mean, there's no wrong with. There's no problem with with super appreciating, senior market. Yeah, there's no there's no problem with appreciating uh, the movie Dune. It's an imperfect adaptation, for, uh, for sure. It has some some definite flaws. Uh, it's kind of boring, but it's also got some some serious flair and moments. It's got some great costumes and uh, even. You know, as a Dune fan, you can't help but like something about it. Right, but you're saying the books are a richer experience. Well, the first book is a richer experience. Right. They, it's it's complicated. Fine, know. then I'm just going to read the first one and not the rest. Well, the, the second one's pretty good, too. Uh, anyway, if you have uh, some thoughts to share with us, they may relate to candy. They may relate to pooping robots. They may relate to the Dune series. Uh, write in. Let us know, you know especially on the, the candy and, and the whole uh, sting thing. Yeah. I uh, mean, but, you know, not together. No, no. Unless you have a candy sting story. Ooh, that might be good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can, of course, uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.